I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. I have a quick favour to ask. If you're an avid listener to the show, please do rate and review it on whichever platform you're currently listening. It's a great way to help support spread the word and also to get the algorithms to really help publicise the show to people who are looking at the platforms. And today I'm delighted to be chatting to Cam F. Awesome, and he is a keynote speaker, diversity consultant, event MC, and multi-time national champion heavyweight Olympic boxer. As a motivational speaker, Cam shares lessons he's learnt travelling to more than 30 countries as captain of Team USA. Cam's Olympic journey was featured on the Netflix original documentary, Counterpunch. Cam's presentations were admired by both students and educators because they inspired the audience to uncover their genuine potential while delivering an enjoyable experience. Now, Cam provides these options in person and virtually, so it's a great way for everyone listening to hopefully get a chance to see how these two worlds collide from boxing to education to make a real difference in the children that you're supporting. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Cam F. Awesome. Hi, Cam. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. I love the diversity of the people that I speak to, and I'm not sure that I've spoken to a boxer before, let alone someone who's been so successful in their career. But I also love the fact that it's using those skills, that experience to to help children and to help young people, which um, just makes such a a real life difference, I think. Yeah. So thanks so much for being here. It's an honor to be the greatest boxer that has ever been on your show. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) So, Take us, first of all, into where that boxing journey started in terms of of where that light bulb moment went off when you thought this is going to take me in a a direction which I hadn't quite experienced before. Because I certainly had that when I started learning music. I kind of thought, ah, there's something here which I can speak in a way that was slightly different than I'd ever experienced before. Uh, Actually, weirdly enough, I I figured out something when I was like 14 years old. They, in school, they explained how calories work. Uh, They said, like, you you consume about 2,000 calories a day, and then you burn about 2,000 calories a day, and you break even. But when I was 14, I was overweight, and I was very insecure, and I wanted to lose weight. And the only way I knew how to lose weight was by joining a sports team. Uh, And I tried out for every team, but the problem was I'm not athletic. So I just couldn't make a team. And then I learned how calories work. And basically, how, the way I explain you, you consume 2,000, you burn 2,000, you break even. Which means I saw an equation in my head. If you burn more calories than you consume, you will lose weight. I'm just going to let you know, Mark, every, every diet you've ever heard of, that's just the formula. If you strip every diet down of all of its nonsense... If you burn more calories than you consume, you'll lose weight. So to me, this equation worked out to one plus two equals three. Me plus 
burning calories equals losing weight. I know that seems very simple, but I'm a very simple person. So like, that's how my brain works. So every morning I woke up, I went rollerblading before school because in my mind, if I burn more calories, I'll lose weight. And I did this morning after morning, after morning, after morning, after morning, after morning, six mornings in a row. Day seven, I woke up, I was sore, I was tired and I was frustrated because not a single person stopped and said, Hey, Cam, I can tell you're losing weight. Keep up the good work. And I remember on day seven, like, remembering the only thing in life that works is math. It's an equation. And I I was like, there's nothing else for me to do besides keep doing it. And I figured, well, I guess I didn't gain all this weight in six days. I guess if I stick with the equation, it will eventually work. And that was the first time I... I tackled delayed gratification. So burn more calories than you consume, you'll lose weight, right? I couldn't make a team, but the boxing gym was a free gym, a community center, and you didn't have to make a team. I don't even like boxing. I just joined because it was the only thing team I could make. And again, you burn more calories than you consume, you'll lose weight. So I was just in the gym every day working out, losing weight like crazy. After about three months, people would say, Look at Cam, he thinks he's skinny. And a light bulb went off in my head. One plus two equals three. In this equation, you are one. You should always be your own number one. No one's gonna believe in you until you believe in yourself. In this equation, number three, one plus two equals three. Three is the outcome, the goal, the objective. One plus two equals three. Two in this equation is what you need to do to get to number three. U plus number two equals three. The reason why I call number two number two because it is the way it sounds. It's the crappy part of the job. It's the the part you don't want to do. So long-winded answer. When I first got in the ring to spar for my first time, when I joined the boxing gym, I didn't want to spar or get get hit or anything like that. I'm, I'm not very aggressive. But they said, hey, Cam, you're in better shape than all the boxers. Do you want to spar? And I said, oh, no, my mom won't let me. And then everyone laughed. I was like, I'm joking, I'm joking. I'll buy a mouthpiece. And I had to spar for the first time. And immediately out of fear, the equation changed. One plus two equals three turned into one, me. Two equals not getting hit. And three equals surviving. Me plus not getting hit equals winning. And because I was so afraid of getting hit, I moved around so much and my defense was so good. I would burn more calories sparring than I would doing anything else. So I got addicted to sparring and I realized if you do anything long enough, you're just going to become good at it. Uh, And within two, about two and a half years of picking up gloves for the first time, I became the number one heavyweight boxer in the United States. It's amazing, that story. And I'm really curious about that delayed gratification. Because like you said, you know, six days of doing your your sort of rollerblading to begin with, and then you're thinking, where's the change? And then knowing that it's like, I I love the way that you managed to pick up. It's like, it took me longer than six days to get here to begin with. So therefore, it's probably going to take me longer than that to to change my habits and, and get the result. But how long did you think you'd be able to do it in order for it to kind of to to make that difference you know did did you think oh 
I've understood this concept now. I'm happy to do it for a month or a year or however long. Or, or did you, where, where were those signposts where you started to think, well, actually, yeah, people are noticing, but also I feel like I'm, I'm on a, I'm on a sort of, of positive direct di directory rather than just having to do it for the sake of it. Uh, I, I would say in my mind, after I realized it didn't, it didn't take me six days to gain all this weight, I was about 14. I said I would do it for 14 years in my head. Uh, and I think I always, I go extreme like that because it's not going to take 14 years. But if I prepare myself for 14 years, I'll be less likely to quit. So I just said, okay, I'm 14. If I did this until I'm 28, there's no way I can do this for 14 years and not lose weight. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was kind of the, the, the catalyst to it. And, uh, yeah, it, it was just that equation. One plus two equals three. It, it works for anything. You plus whatever the work you need to get done equals the goal. The problem is one plus two equals three. A lot of us don't want to do the number two part. Because it, it's, and think about this equation. You can be happy when you do, I call number two, number two, just because of potty humor. But you can be happy when you do number two. You can be sad when you do number two. You can be frustrated, angry. The only thing you cannot add to this equation is your feelings. Because once you start to add your emotions in there, and a, a lot of people like to promote emotions and like feel your emotions. You can feel your emotions if you want. But your emotions don't mean a thing. And you shouldn't judge your reality based off of emotions. Mark, uh, have you ever been in a relationship that didn't work out? Yeah. Okay, day number one of that breakup, you were like, I hate this person. I can't believe I committed this much time to them. Tuesday, you're like, you know what? I'm glad that it's over. Wednesday, you're like, I think I missed that person. Thursday, you're like, I, I, I left a movie at their house. I should go pick it up. Friday, you're like, I love them. Saturday, I miss them. Sunday, I hate them. Those are all your emotions. If you were to stop at any point and make a hard life decision based off one of those fleeting emotions, you'll be shooting yourself in the foot. And a lot of us do this. One plus two equals three. If you want to get to your goal, remove your feeling. Now, I, I respect, I value mental health. But one of the one of the I speak at schools, I do school assemblies. And one of the big quotes and bigger takeaways is if you can fail without being discouraged, success becomes inevitable. And that's the resilience piece of it. Because when you fail, you at least gain experience, you learn something. So the next time you attempt, it's going to be a little bit easier. So the way this worked for me in boxing was. Obviously, I didn't make any teams because I'm not athletic, but I found I found a code that Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule. This is before I even learned about it. You can do something for 10,000 hours. You master it. I understood, Mark, if you had, uh, let's say you were a boxer, right? If you had 100 fights and I had three fights and we fought, who do you think would win? Well, you would think the person who had the more experience, but it. Yeah. The, mo the mo more experience would, would usually win. So in my mind, I said, okay, I'm not a great boxer. So just like I committed to my mind to do that work after 14 years, I said, you know what? The average boxer has maybe about 30 to 50 fights, right? 
said, well, I'll just have 200 fights. I'm not going to be good for my first 200 fights, Mark. I committed to that. But after 200 fights, and I'm if I got 200 fights, I'm fighting a guy with 12 fights. Based off of experience alone, I win. So I ended my career with over 400 fights, and I'm the most decorated uh, amateur boxer in U.S. history. Not because I have a great record by any means. If you can fail without being discouraged, success becomes inevitable. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, a guy from Italy came to the U.S., Roberto Camarelli. He was the number one boxer in the world at the time. He came to the United States to fight me in Nevada, in my home turf. Mark, do you think I'm going to let some dude come to my country and beat me on my own home turf? Absolutely not. Yeah, he beat the crap out of me, Mark. Yeah, that wasn't my plan. I thought I was going to win that fight. But in Italy, in Europe, they fight differently. They throw hooks more wide, and you don't see them coming. And I'd never prepared. I'd never seen this before. I never even thought about watching tapes for boxers in Italy. And this dude schooled me. And I got back to the locker room and I had this thought. I was like, oh man, first of all, embarrassed. I had this whole thing. No one's going to beat me in my own home And I lost. And then it hit me. He did something I'd never seen before. But now I've experienced it. The other boxers in the United States, they don't know what that is. I then went on over a 30-fight win streak by doing what that guy did to me during that fight. That is one of my losses. I've got 39 losses, Mark. That's more losses than anyone could, any, anyone else I know. I didn't become the most successful boxer by being good. I just became the successful by being resilient. Because the whole, if, whole idea, if you can fail without being discouraged, success becomes inevitable. That was one out of my 39 losses. I've got over 400 wins. And I would have never got to win 400 if I would have stopped at loss 20. Yeah, it's such an important thing, isn't it? And it just reminds me of that idea of being sort of the the average of the of the five people that you surround yourself with. Because like you say, you're learning by all of those experiences. You're learning by being around people that have something to offer you which you've not come across before, but in that kind of positive way, like you say. Um, and, and I think it's, it's such a powerful thing. And also just whatever your passion is, diving into it and, and experiencing it. And like you said, you know, it may have been that had you been... I'm going to research everything related to boxing across the world that you might have come across it before, but you still wouldn't have been in a ring with someone who was able to do it until you were having that experience. So that brings me on to uh, something which I think is fascinating is that as someone who goes in and speaks in schools, I guess people are kind of like, wow, here's someone who's been there, done it, experienced it, got the success and all the things that you can share with people. And that, with that comes a little bit of a kind of, yeah, you know, the emotion, like you said, the emotion starts to go when we're really into this, we really understand what you're saying. But they haven't experienced it. They, they have that sort of initial kind of, yeah, right, I'm, you know, I, I can see how I can better my life or support myself, but they haven't experienced it. So how does that that next step look for them do they have to kind of use that crest of a wave to kind of work out that one plus two equals three and find out what they need to do to do it or or, or sort of how do you sort of suggest their sort of next steps are uh so i do it differently in schools than i do in person so like if in part mark do you have your phone on you or anything yep uh okay so do you believe words are powerful yep 
So I believe words are very powerful. Uh, in 2000 and in 2012, I won the United States Olympic trials to represent the U.S. in the London Olympics. This is actually I'll go back before that. When I was walking. So in high school, when I joined boxing, my boxing gym was six miles away from my high school. And so that's about uh, kilometer wise, like 12 kilometers. I don't know. Uh, it, was, it was about a three hour walk. And this is 2006 before we had music on our phone. So I had an MP3 player and I didn't have money for batteries. So I didn't have music and I would have to walk to the gym. So I was going to have to make up stories in my head to keep myself entertained. And if I'm going to be the author of a story, Mark, I'm going to be the protagonist. Uh, so in all these stories, I was kicking butt. I was winning all my fights. I was traveling around the world. I had all the money. I had all the girls. None of this was true. It was just stories I would make up to myself. And I would do this for three hours a day, five days a week. 15 hours a week, I was just patting myself on the back about how amazing I was in my head. And this changed a shift for me because I was this unconfident, bullied kid. Then I finally lost the weight, but I didn't get the confidence. And this walk, 15 hours a week, changed my confidence. All I was doing was building myself up. I got cocky, if I'm being honest. I became obsessed with myself. Some would say almost narcissistic because I just thought I would win all the time. And I was just the best. And... And that confidence made me become the number one boxer in the country in two years. I won the 2000, I won nationals every year until 2012. I won the 2012 Olympic trials and I got kicked off the Olympic team for not sending an email. Uh, it was a drug testing issue. It was, I, I forgot to, I left the country to fight in a tournament, a tournament you have to get drug tested to fight in. Uh, I went to Azerbaijan to fight in this tournament and they showed up to my home in the, in the States to give me a random drug test and I wasn't there. And even though I tested negative that same week in Azerbaijan to even compete in the tournament, they suspended me. This wasn't a real offense. This was after Lance Armstrong went on Oprah and they made an example out of a bunch of athletes. I happened to be one of them. I was super depressed and I was beating myself up and it was so different than the confident person I used to be. And I realized that our belief in ourselves has a lot to do with our abilities. So if you can grab your phone and look up the word humble, the definition of humble. Now, I was humbled in 2012 after I got kicked off the Olympic team. Now, Mark, do you have any children? Yes. How many? Uh, three. Three. Let's go with the middle one because we always forget about the middle one, don't <laughs> we? As a middle child, I would say that. Uh, think. What's your middle child's name? Uh, Tommy. Tommy. Okay. Read me the first definition of of uh, humble and tell me if this is something you would wish on Tommy. It says, having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's importance. Does that sound like a positive trait? Um, I think so. Okay. Maybe the second definition. Um, it says of low social, administrative, or political rank. <laughs> Maybe this needs to. Does that with. sound positive? <laughs> Not necessarily. Okay, is there a third definition? Um, someone to feel less important or proud, as okay. as in humbled by their by their ordeals or or I guess experiences. Okay. And if you were to break down the Latin root word. It's lowly. So the idea of being humble, when I say I got humble, by I, I was confident. 
And then I got kicked off the Olympic team and I was humbled. I was brought down. I was brought lower. So when you think about how we socialize our children to be, if we teach them to be humble, we're literally, by the definition of, and power of words, we're telling them to be smaller. So when people find out that I legally changed my last name to Awesome, I changed my last name to Awesome as a reminder to believe in myself. One plus two equals three. You're number one. If you don't believe in yourself, no one will. And I want students to start believing themselves because that equation only works is if, if you actually believe in yourself. And let's say, think about someone, you, you get good news in your life, right, Mark? And think about someone you, you, you get around, you're like, oh, I can't tell this person that news, right? Because you're up here, right? You're feeling good about yourself and you see this person here. You're like, oh, I don't want to tell my news. So what do you do? You humble yourself and you lower yourself down to where they are. Now, if everyone continues to lower themselves to the lowest common denominator, how can you really expect a child to, to thrive if they've never been taught to genuinely believe in themselves? If they're never taught to celebrate their wins, to feel good about themselves. If they're always worried about making other people feel bad and they don't want other people to feel sad. And we all know that misery loves company. How is important is it to actually believe in yourself? No. Mark, you cannot, you look Tommy in the eyes, right? You look Tommy in the eyes. Listen, Tommy's four years old, right? You tell Tommy, you can be anything you want to be if you believe in yourself. All you have to do is stick to it. And you, Mark, you genuinely believe this, right? What would it look like if Tommy believed in you? If Tommy believed you that he could do anything he wants? Well, I think... I've, what would it look like? I've, I think it looked like someone who had an abandonment of, of worry, I mean, I think probably at that age, kids do anyway. It's later on they start to struggle within that. But that that sense of belief of just that anything is possible because inherently that's kind of where you start from. <laughs> and I think if you're saying that to a child that age, then you're going to kind of just reiterate that as well. Um, and 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 I think I think the humble thing is really really fascinating in as much as. I think sometimes the perception of that, I, I really liked sort of that, like you said, the literacy of it, um, which I'm not sure I've thought of in quite that same way, because I think the way I've come across it or thought about it sometimes is that sense of of not over-egging yourself and sort of being able to have the two things coexisting in the same time. You might have the belief in yourself and the ability of what you can do, but you're not going to shout, shout things from the rooftops if it's not grounded in reality, I think that's more about it. I, sort of, you can sort of have that kind of strength and understanding and, and sort of feeling like you can do anything, but without really kind of just being brazen about it when it's not based on anything um, constructive necessarily. But I think the problem with that, and I think I can sort of see the error of my ways in some ways, is the fact that then all of a sudden you're not giving yourself that benefit because you probably are just by, as you said, by definition, keeping it low and not making that positive energy going outwards, which maybe is a hindrance more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, so reading this definition, uh, and, and of course, I would like to, to preface uh, being humble in the eye of the Lord. Uh, Mark, last time I checked, that wasn't you. That's true. So, yes, I respect everyone's beliefs, but the idea of being humble around other people, uh, I don't really see the benefit. And you, you said grounded in reality. Yeah. That's another thing. I think that's silly. Reality is the worst thing you want to. Okay. Because think about reality. Think about Tommy. You tell Tommy you can make it to, you can, you can play in the World Cup, right? 
Well, Tommy's four years old. Do you think that's, is that any type of reality? He would have to be delusional to think he could ever be good enough to play on that level. And everyone who is playing on that level at one point was delusional enough to believe that they could. So what we do is, because kids, they don't have ears. They physically do, but they don't really have ears. They have eyes. So when you tell Tommy he can be anything he wants to be, eventually, like, he'll start to believe you. But then once he becomes a little older, seven, eight, nine, he starts to see you get real frustrated when you don't succeed at first. And you actually don't believe in yourself. Why would you tell your kid to not be humble? You're telling your kid to believe in yourself, to stand up for yourself, to believe you can do anything. But you don't exhibit that behavior. I have parents tell me a lot of times, how can I get my kid to put down their phone and pick up a book? Well, mom, how many books have you read this year? Because they, they don't have ears, they have eyes. And they're just going to do what they see you do. And your confidence level, the way you handle adversity, the way you handle frustrating situations, that's the way your child is going to handle those situations as well. So I believe resilience is... I wouldn't say it's so much genetic as it is cultural. Yeah, that 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 that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I'd I'd also um, I'd also put into the mix there. You sort of mentioned about the number of children. That I think many people listening who have a class of people, as in a school class, or if you've got multiple children at home, it's also interesting how those personalities then do what they do based on what they see like you said as well as what they hear because of course anybody who has more than one child knows that you can be you're obviously the same person that's living their life in all those ways that you've just spoken about but they also take their own version of that on how that goes forward based on what they see and i think that's an interesting sort of side part of that is the fact that maybe not everybody sees the same thing even when there's there's sort of a central person if that makes sense yeah, I love that. <clears throat> yeah, it's the same parent, three different kids. Yeah. Three different personalities, three different perceptions. And also, a first-time parent, you have your first kid, you have three. I'm sure there's things you did with your first kid that by the time you did with the third kid, you're like, oh, that's either redundant or I should be doing more of that or I should be doing less of that. And you kind of learn. And your child, you get three different childs. They had three different parents, three different maturity levels. You, when you had your first kid at 24, was different than your first, your second kid at 28, and then your third kid at 32. It's, you're also a different person. You have to give yourself grace. Uh, we can't expect our, our children to be perfect. That, you should throw that out the window. This is, this is when they grow to make mistakes. This is when they color outside the lines. This is when they try to establish boundaries. You have to give children space to be imperfect. And to be able to do that, just like they don't have ears, they have eyes, you have to give yourself space as an adult to be imperfect as well. If you're a teacher and you make a mistake, stop the class. Point out your mistake and let the kids know, hey, we all make mistakes. But when you do, it's important to stop and point it out. But a lot of times as parents, we, we're, we're afraid to let our children know we're doing something wrong. Because we, we feel like we'd lose some type of authority. But as that child gets older and realizes you, you aren't perfect and you do make mistakes, 
the only way they're going to be able to own up to their mistakes is if you own up to yours. I think that's really true. And I think what you mentioned about the parent being different with each child, just purely on their experience, I think is, is really, really important because you're dead right. What, where you are as a parent, day one of child one is very different of day one of child three, both in terms of experience and maturity and actual age and, and all of those things. I think it's... Uh, and finances. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, makes 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 a really big difference, and I think I think I think that whole thing, like I said, it sort of boils down to awareness, doesn't it? Because it's we're talking about an environment to fail and an environment to succeed, a formula for all of those things as well. And I think being aware of how all those things look and how they morph, um, really, yeah, yeah, it's really, re- really, really fascinating um, from from that point of view, and and also. Yeah, how, how they how they take that on, and um and and in your experience, do you find that from the areas that you're able to speak in, and the types of different people that you speak to, do they does it change in terms of what they see, or does the message come across the same? Uh so I do slightly different speeches than most. Uh so in 2012, I started doing stand up comedy, and. If you know, like, oh, you're an artist, so you know how open mic nights work. Yeah. You go, you go to some pub where no one even, no one's there to pay attention to you. They're there to talk to your friends, and you just have to play music over them. Uh, that's me trying to do jokes over people who's not listening late at night. And uh, I would, I would do school assemblies, and then I would have to stay up late at night to do open mic nights to try out my stand-up comedy jokes. And I was like, oh, I just started using the last five minutes of each school assembly to practice my material. And the students loved it so much that I started doing seven minutes and then 10 minutes. And then I just started doing the entire, I do an hour comedy special at schools. Every joke has a moral or message attached to it. Because if you can get students to laugh, you can trick them into listening. If you can trick them into listening, you just got them to learn. If I got them to learn, I did my job. So what I started to do was start stand-up comedy at schools for students and then they would ask me to come in and speak to the teachers. And then I realized that adults are just children with the ability to drive. <laughs> we all want to be entertained. We all want to be engaged. Uh, so the way I approach school assemblies is I, I try to, just like the whole word, the humble, I, I try to approach things in abstract ways that normal people wouldn't otherwise do it because I don't want you to agree with me. Even with the, the word humble, and I understand the religious connotation that's connected to that, and a lot of people won't agree with me. I don't care if you agree with me. I just want to challenge the way you think. Because that's what we should do to children. We should challenge the way they think. We should have them challenge us. We should have them see different perspectives. When I go to schools, I tell them, hang out with people that don't look like you. Hang out with people of different religions, different backgrounds. You might go to a friend's house, a Muslim friend's house and eat some weird curry thing or something, and then it ends up being your favorite food that you would have never been able to experience otherwise. I, I explained to children, as captain of Team USA, of the boxing team, I was able to travel to over 30 countries. And there's one specific thing that every one of these countries have in common. They're all really weird compared to my country. And to me, that that was... I love weird, by the way, and I don't think weird is a bad word. Weird is fascinating to me. 
weird as in like you go to China, they don't make eye contact. Or you go to Japan, they don't make eye contact. You go to Azerbaijan, you can't leave a tip. You go to England, you do leave a tip. You So I went to Azerbaijan for, for we went for about six weeks. I, and have you ever been? No, I haven't. No. So, so culturally, so I was captain of the team. So I would have to research the do's and don'ts about each country and then relay the message to my teammates so we don't make ourselves look like idiots outside the country. I go to Azerbaijan. I miss this fact. You don't leave tips. I went, I shook this, our, our team guy, I went to shake his hand. I slipped him a few monots, a few of their dollars as a thank you, as a tip because he got me a free ride to the mall. So I, I thanked him. You know, you give tips. And I came back. He brought me to a back room. He put the money on the counter. And he said, if you respect me as a man, what is this about? I'm confused. I'm like, uh, 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 I, 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 I thank you. I, a, a tip. And he says, gratuity. He didn't know tip. He knew gratuity. English wasn't his first language. He says, yes. He gave me the money back. He says, we don't do that here. So. What I learned in that moment is intent versus impact. My intentions, of course, and first of all, no one cares about your intentions, which is what I learned. My intentions was, hey, Fico was his name. Fico, uh, thank you so much. I'm an American. I want to thank you. We're great people in. I want to show respect. But the impact I had on him was different than my intentions. The impact, because in their country, there's no welfare. Men don't take handouts. So what I was saying is, Hey, Fico, you're not enough of a man to take care of your family and your kids. You, here's some scraps, you peasant. You peasant, Because in, in his mind, that's how he took it. Because cultural differences. In that moment, my intent didn't match the impact. And I can't argue about my intentions. Because the only thing that matters is how I made someone else feel. And in that moment, you have to stop. You have to take take action and apologize for your impact before you even start to explain your intent. Now, me doing this to over 30 countries, I've learned so much. I've had so much different insight from so many different cultures. And it has shifted the way my brain thinks. Because I used to think certain ways about certain things. I used to think certain people were supposed to be certain ways. And then I left the country and I got to hang out with people who didn't think the way I did. And I realized that I was very ignorant. And the only way to to rid ignorance is enlightenment. And the only way to be enlightened is to realize that you're in the darkness and you need to know something. Uh, So just being open to different perspectives. And I think that's so important to learn at an early age. And I guess that's where the your sort of grace comment really fits in is an important factor there because you don't know what you don't know, do you? So if you haven't experienced it before, if you've not been around different cultures, if your sort of your life is very sort of one plus one equals two, in as much as this is what I do, this is what you do, this is the reality of everybody else. If that's all you know, then that's all you know. And it's only like you say, as your experiences grow and then you can decide to make those differences and open yourself up and be enlightened. The, the the life will change for you and then also like I say the impact you can have on other people just by your understanding that 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 as well which I think is it's really really important and I, and I also like the that idea of intent and impact because it's slightly different when it's with other people isn't it than with yourself because you would hope that the intent like you said in terms of your number one and your 
um, and the ability of what you then do, the impact is going to have a direct correlation. But that's only when you have all of those things together because you have control of that it's about you but i guess there's a little bit of a an anomaly in there uh, as well in as much as of course you've got people that may be helping you like you say in your kind of gym scenario you know that by doing this particular workout and sparring like this it's going to make a difference but within that you're bringing other people in and they're having an effect as well and so that impact is 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 definitely not just you it actually is going to be other people as well oh yes yes uh yeah. What are, what are your thoughts? You mentioned something about uh, the other boxers. What are your thoughts as a parent of a competition? Um, competition generally. I think I think it's important because I think it's <laughs> I nearly said reality again, but then we sort of end up in that sort of <laughs> in that sort of um, same situation as we were before. But I, I think, you know, most people's experiences are that if you're going for a job, you are in competition with other people. If you're trying to strive for something, if other people are involved and someone's going to have to choose one over another in whatever form that happens to be, whether it's in sports, if in terms of winning and losing or whether it's in terms of a job or, or a situation that is what most people will experience and so to negate competition i think does a disservice to to understanding that experience going forward so i think i think it's something which you you have to be aware of and i think it's also something which is going to certainly give you the experience that all those things that you've spoken about now are going to help you moving forward yeah yeah i i'm big on competition uh i even friendly competition, if because the impact, the impact of competitiveness makes everyone better. And the, I can't remember the guy's name, but he wrote the book Anti Fragile. It's the concept that the more a human goes through, the more a person goes through, the stronger they become. So if you ingest five milligrams of poison, your body will fight it off. And the next time we'll be able to handle 10 milligrams of poison. That's how your immunity system works. The only way your body can handle 100 milligrams of poison is if it continuously poisons itself. So the more stress your body goes through, the stronger it becomes. Think about your muscles. The more you deteriorate your muscles, the, the stronger they build back, right? The concept is mentally the same. The more we go through, the stronger we become. And I believe we should want our kids to go through more. Now, you are who you are, Mark, because of everything you've experienced. Your heartbreaks, your failures, your losses, your defeats. Were you happy about all those things, Mark? I think that's a little bit like you said before about the time thing and the emotional relationship is because it changes depending on the time frame that you're talking about and and how your perception of that that is and I think that's one of the things about getting older and maturity is the fact that you can be you can be grateful at the same time as not feeling grateful at the time I think that's that's probably the key takeaway Yes. So with that, the more you go through, the stronger become the, the losses that you didn't want to you didn't want to take when you took them. When you look back at it, you're grateful you took those losses. How much are you willing to allow your child to go through? So we hear the story about Michael Jordan, the basketball player, right? 
he got kicked off of his middle school basketball team. Have you heard that story? Yeah. Do you know why he got kicked off the team? That that I can't remember. I can tell you why. He wasn't good enough. He wasn't good enough. He had to deal with the heartbreak of not being good enough for an entire 365 days. He had to wait a whole year to try out again. Think about the way parents would handle the situation with a heartbroken child. Your kid gets cut off the team. You show up to the school the next day and try to convince the coach, hey, at least let him sit on the bench. He's heartbroken. He really wants to participate. Do you think Michael Jordan would have been who Michael Jordan is if his dad would have allowed him to at least get on the bench? <laughs> no, absolutely not. But I, I think, like you say, it's the it shows two things, doesn't it? It gives you that experience of 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 experiencing what that is, but it also shows that real hunger and drive and determination of this isn't just another thing. This is something that I'm so passionate about and so into that I'm prepared to do the the one plus two equals three to make sure that three is the best thing that I can actually do. I love that. Yes. Uh, and, and the thing is the competitiveness you have to lose enabled to, to, to want to win. Uh, and of course I didn't win all of my, bo- I've lost 39 boxing matches. I'm so great now in hindsight, I've, I've, I cry after every loss. I can tell you all 39 fights I've lost. I was in the airport a few years ago, Mark, and this guy approached me. We start talking, small talk. And after about three minutes, he says, oh, you don't even remember me, do you? And I didn't. He said, Cam, we fought three times. I beat this guy three times. That's how little I think about my wins. I win out of sight, out of mind. There's nothing to learn from it. I lose. I obsess over every single punch, every slip, every movement. And those losses is the reason why I get the wins to not think about them. So I'm grateful for all of my losses. In the in those moments when I cried after every loss, no, of course I didn't want to lose. But I think it's important to build character in your child by allowing them to lose, allowing them to fail, allowing them to not make the team, allowing them to be sad. Be sad, process those emotions. Oh, you're mad that you didn't make the team? Are you going to cry about it? Good, good. I'm not, I cry a lot. I don't tell kids not to cry. It's an emotion. Feel all those emotions. Now you're angry, right? You're angry you didn't make the team because you weren't good enough. How are you going to handle that? Now are you going to start eating junk food and hang out with your friends? Or are you going to start training so next year, you're going to be so prepared that you you might even be captain. Your growth, you might be varsity of team. Now, if you can instill that type of fierceness in a child, in Tommy, when when Tommy's 12 and doesn't make doesn't make the team and he gets that fierceness, now Tommy's 24. He didn't get the job. Why? Oh, Mark, because he wasn't good enough. That's why. And what does Tommy do? Well, Tommy knows what happens. One plus two equals three. How do you become good enough? And whatever he did to get on that team is the same thing he's going to need to do to get to get that job. And I think it's so powerful. Sports and music are parallels to life because it's kind of like just a formula. Music is just a formula. It's the notes, right? 
everyone has the same notes, don't they? But music is so different. So it's like, what can you, what can you inspire Tommy to, to come up with, with a passion? But if we, if we, if we, if we hold our kids' hands and, and helicopter parent them, and we never let them get the bumps and bruises to build the characters to become great, then I feel like we fail our children. Yeah, and you just you just took me in a little sort of journey there that I'm not sure I'd thought about before because I, I was thinking about the idea of um, of acceptance as well because you can do all of those things and have that experience, like you say, and still not get the job or be as prepared as you think you possibly can be but still lose the fight. But I think then it just takes you into that whole thing about the journey because it's then about the next job or the next fight and that continual learning process because it's not about just today, it's about everything that you're going to do from here on in. Yes. Uh, I like to tell students that, uh, or uh, I tell everyone, goals, think of a goal as a lighthouse. You're a ship in the ocean and you're such a distance away. You see, you know where the lighthouse is. You just go in that direction. You don't need exact coordinates. You see it. Go in that direction. That's the first step. I want your goal to be so big and so far away that you don't have to worry about getting there anytime soon. It's 14 years away. Okay. When you think like that, because the lighthouse is a goal, the closer you get to that lighthouse, you're going to start to see details on that lighthouse that you couldn't see from the distance which means your goal might look a little different the closer you get to it. And the closer you get to the goal, you'll start to see textures and colors. And you'll say, well, maybe this lighthouse isn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. But you're still heading in the right direction. Because you're, you're, the goal is to get to land, right? Now, for me, my goal was the Olympics. When I started boxing, the first day I figured out this equation, I was so confident with this equation, I said... I was going to be the number one boxer in the world. That was my thought. And I said, okay, I'm going to the Olympics. In two years, I qualified for the for the Olympic trials. I lost the first day in 2008. I lost the 2008 Olympic trials. I won nationals in 2009, 10, 11, 12. 2012, I won the Olympic trials. Forgot to send an email. I got kicked off the Olympic team. Got suspended and kicked off the Olympic team for a year. I was sad. I was depressed. I decided I needed to believe in myself. Because I'm a little dramatic, I went out and I legally changed my last name to Awesome as a reminder to believe in yourself. And I also let students know that you can be as weird as you want because all stu everyone is weird. And we're also insecure about our weirdness. So we all conform to do whatever we think everyone else is doing. And I want students to know that you can change your last name to Awesome. You can be that completely weird person because I love weird. I'm a big fan of weird. You can be that weird person and still find success in life. You don't need to suppress who you are to find happiness. So I changed my last name. Awesome. I returned to boxing. I won nationals in 2013, 2014, 2015. I finally win the 2016 Olympic trials. Uh, this is documented in the Netflix documentary Counterpunch. If you want to, if you're interested in that story, it documents my journey from 2013 to 2016. After I win the Olympic trials, I lose an international competition in the finals on a split decision and don't get to go to Rio. I return to boxing. I win nationals every year again. Now it's 2020. I finally, now 2020, I have my speaking business. Team USA says I can't box for Team USA. If I have my speaking business, I need to dissolve my speaking business. My dad's from Trinidad and Tobago, right? 
I flew to my dad's home country. I learned about his country. I became a citizen. I filed for citizenship. I got dual citizenship. I fought in the Olympic trials. I won by knockout. I returned to the U.S. I was speaking in high school. I was speaking in middle school. I was doing stand-up comedy. I was training for the Olympics. And right before the 2020 Games, the pandemic happens. I just shared to you my journey. My goal was the lighthouse. The Olympics was the lighthouse. I never made it to the Olympics. Over 16 years of my life, I've been dedicating after that goal. I didn't get it. Now, if you judged my goal by the Olympics, yes, I'm definitely a failure. But that's not how I judge it. I judge it by the journey. I was in the ship looking for the lighthouse. I got to see some cool things on the journey. I've been to over 30 countries. So when you say, talk about failure or defeat, I, I don't see it as failure or defeat. I just see it as a journey. But you need to take that first step. And a lot of us, were so afraid to take that first step because we're afraid of failure. But again, if my goal to lose weight was, was six days, that was a failure. I let my goal be 14 years. Why? Because it was double my age. I just picked a number. If you can set a goal that big, you're so, you're, if you set a goal that's obtainable, you're so concerned with failing that you, you're afraid to take the first step. But when you set a goal so monumentous, the only way to get there is you need momentum. You start taking little small steps to get there. And when I look at my list of accomplishments through boxing, that's not something I would ever be able to accomplish if I saw it. If you said, hey, Cam, here's a list of these championships. Go out and win them. Oh, well, that's impossible. But if you say, hey, go after that lighthouse. Like, okay, I might not get it, but let's see what I collect on the way there. That's the way I look at things. Because if you look at it as just a collection of things on your way to your journey, you'll be more likely to be resilient. And on the the idea of resilience. So I I see, so it was, uh, remind me, it was feedback. uh, It was feedback, inspiration, resilience, and- Empowerment. Empowerment. Okay, so feedback on my journey. So coaching, I'm in the ring. I'm getting constant coaching. So boxing is life. It's a metaphor for life. We all get knocked out. We have knocked down. We all have to get back up. Feedback is your coach. Of course, you're in the ring. You're in there. My coach isn't taking punches for me. But he can see things that I can't see. So in between rounds, when I come back, I have to take his feedback. I have to trust. I have to have faith in him. So first, I need to trust my team. That's more than anything. I need to trust my team. So faith and feedback. Okay, so I trust my team. I get feedback from my team for the next round. So I started to get hit with a lot of jabs this round. I, in between rounds, I go back to my coach. My coach says, hey, here's this feedback. You need to start moving to your left. Circle around. Okay. I go back in. Second, inspiration. I walk to the gym three hours a day, five days a week. Some days it rained. I didn't want to walk to the gym. When it would rain, I would put a, I have a garbage bag in my book bag. I would take the garbage bag out of my book bag, put the book bag in my garbage bag so my books didn't get wet and continue to walk to the gym. Why? Because in the moments... I consider that gas, fuel. In the moments when I'm tired, when I have nothing left in my tank and I want to give up, I think, well, my opponent didn't walk three hours a day to the gym. He doesn't deserve to win. That's where I find the inspiration to dig deeper. The resilience, I already shared that. If you can fail without being discouraged, success becomes inevitable. I lost that one fight to that Italian. I ended up going on a 30-fight win streak. If... I were to lose that fight and I got the experience from the loss, 
But if I said, oh, I got embarrassed, I'll never box again. This isn't for me. Then yes, that, that was a waste. That was a waste of, of an experience. And uh, the empowerment. Weirdly, the empowerment, right before we started, because I'm, I'm in the States, uh, so it's pretty early in the morning. The empowerment's one thing I leave with students for almost every speech. I try to end with uh, a challenge. I call it my 300 reasons challenge because this is the empowerment part of it. During the pandemic, I was I had a lot of free time and I thought, think about all the books you read. Look, look at, I have books back here, right? After we read someone's book because we value their opinion. We want to know their insight. We want to learn from them. And we get to the end of the first chapter and it's an action step. And it says, hey, Mark, don't turn this page until you take this action step. What do we do, Mark? Most people read on. <laughs> of course we do. Do we ever go back? I have all those books. I haven't gone back to any of those to go back and do any of the work. So I decided it's a waste of time to read these books and not take any action. Secrets of success is out there for everyone to take, but no one's actually taking the actions. They'll take the secrets, but they're not gonna take any of the actions. So I decided the next book I read, I'm doing everything in this book. And it was during the pandemic I had the time, Mark. And this book was Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. Have you ever read it? I have, yeah. The basic concept of this book is you think about money enough, money's going to show up. Now, think about money. You have to instill it in your consciousness. There's post-it notes. I have post-it notes all over my house. I'm writing in lipstick on my bathroom mirror, my girl's lipstick, like different affirmations. Every morning I'm writing affirmation. And... Crazy thing, Mark, it worked. I started to see money. I started to see money, and, and in the book it says, once you start to see money, you're gonna wonder where it's been hiding from this entire time. That was a big quote from the book. And I thought, if I can do this with money, could I do it with happiness? So what I decided to do was, there's a company called Notes to Self. Uh, I don't have her stuff here, but she makes, a lady, she makes socks and underwear. She puts positive affirmations on socks and underwear. Why? Because your brain is most receptive to information first thing in the morning. Not positive information or negative information, just information. Now, our phones are alarm clocks. First thing we do when we wake up in the morning, we hit snooze, we do math in nine minute increments, and then we check our notifications. And the news is like our phones. If it bleeds, it leads. Social media is the worst gets shown first. So we wake up, we stretch, we yawn, and we start downloading all this negative information into our brains. How do we change that? So I decided every morning I was going to embed this into my consciousness. I wake up, I write a list of 10 things I'm grateful for every morning. I'm grateful for my house. I'm grateful for my car. I'm grateful for my washer. I'm grateful for my dryer. Those are two different things. You can be grateful for everything, Mark. Here's a catch. I don't repeat anything on this list. I challenge students to do this for 30 days. I, I, I also challenge parents to do this with their children for 30 days. Every morning you wake up, even if you don't do it before you look at your phone, write a list of 10 things you're grateful for. Never repeat anything on this list. I found out, I went down a TikTok rabbit hole and I found out about your RAS, your reticular activating system. Are you familiar with this? No. Interesting. So it's your, so it's, it's, Group of neurons in your brain. I'm not a doctor, but if I were, I have the greatest doctor name ever, Dr. Awesome. But I'd take my time to try to explain what it is. Your brain takes in billions of bits of information every moment. Not every second, every moment. Moment, 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 moment. That's a lot of information. Things you see in your peripheral right now. 
your unconscious mind can see it, but it doesn't give that information to your conscious mind because it's not relevant to you. So what your RAS is acts as a filter. It shows you what you're looking for already in life. So let's say you decide to go buy a yellow car, right? You go shopping for a yellow car. You don't buy one. But after that, you just start to see yellow cars everywhere. Has something like that ever happened? Yeah. Now, do you think someone just showed up and painted all the cars yellow <laughs> in the, the day before? Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. Those cars were always there. But the thing is, there's think about it. There's so many cars on the road, so many cars on the road that your brain would be exhausted showing you every single one. So it just shows you the ones that you're actually looking for. And the second you said, you know what? I'm looking for a yellow car. Your brain's like, all right, Mark's looking for a yellow car. Yellow car, yellow car, yellow car, yellow car, yellow car, yellow car. Do you find it funny or a little coincidence that the most popular car that you see on the road happens to be the one that you drive? (laughs) That's how your brain works. What you seek is what you will find. So if you wake up every morning looking for things to be grateful for, right? So what I started to do is because it would take me because I would I still want to look at my phone and it would started to take me 10, 15 minutes to come up with 10 new things uh, to write on my list before I can look at my phone. So I found a cheat code. I would look for things to be grateful for throughout my day, store in my brain, call it delayed gratification. So I'm able to write my list faster the next morning. This triggered my RAS, my reticular activating system, and allowed me to find more joy in my life. So when I talk about empowerment, what is your reason for keep going? The resilience, if you can fail without being discouraged, success becomes inevitable. Let's focus on that word discouraged because we don't quit when we fail. We quit when we get discouraged. And a lot of us get discouraged before we even start. So we don't. So if you can find a way to make yourself more resilient by being less discouraged and being more grateful, being more happy for the little things you find in life, that's more of a reason to continue on. And the idea is if you can fail without being discouraged, success becomes inevitable. If you can collect those 39 losses, you can look back at your 400 wins. Yeah, amazing. Well, Cam, thanks so much for chatting. It really has been one, fascinating, but two, I think I, people can really understand how you're connecting with people that you're speaking with. But I think also just the reality of, of your experiences with how that works and all of those details which you shared, which are they are the building blocks to really support and help everybody. And then it's just a question, like you said, of taking that action and, and understanding that the one plus two equals three. And I really love that. So please tell people where they can find out more. Uh, you can find me at camfawesome.com or on all social media platforms at camfawesome. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a, I'm a, a speaker. I do corporate. I do schools speeches as well. Uh, I'm a diversity consultant. I've traveled to over 30 countries. This is where I learned about cultures and people with their backgrounds. And now I speak about cultural communication within the workplace. Amazing. And we're going to have links to obviously all the stuff related to Cam, but also some of those amazing resources and his insights that he had, um, whether it's the books um, and like I say, all the things in between as well. So yeah, Cam, thanks so much for for sharing that wisdom with us. I, I really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. 
Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.